Bibles to Genesis chapter 47. We're going to cover Genesis 47, beginning with verse 29 through chapter 49, 33. So again, uh, we're not going to read verse by verse. We're going to look at the pertinent uh, topics and the references of the scriptures that we're going to look at. But the title tonight is Joseph, a cut above. Joseph, a cut above. Now, Joseph was a cut above, or however you want to phrase it, superior, more excellent, more honorable, more worthy than the rest of his brothers in his character compared to, you know, his brothers. We've seen his example over and over again in the story of Joseph. But it was made obvious by Jacob towards the end of Jacob's life that Joseph was a cut above the other brothers. At the end of Jacob's life, he clearly showed Joseph as being the most honorable member of his family. And he showed this three different times at his deathbed in his last days. The first time Jacob pointed out Joseph's superiority at his deathbed was when Jacob asked Joseph to promise him when it was time to bury him that it would, not, that it would be in Canaan and not Egypt. And when Jacob felt death was near, he called Joseph to his bedside to make these burial arrangements. And we see those arrangements in verse, uh, chapter 47 verses 29 through 31. So let's look at chapter 49 and verses uh, 29 through 31. Chapter 9, I'm sorry, sorry, chapter, uh, verse 47, chapter 29 through 31. And it says, When the time drew near that Israel or Jacob, both the same man, that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, and you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And Joseph said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Like I said, when Jacob felt death was near, he made his son make this promise to him of these burial arrangements. And then later on, Jacob instructed all of his sons about his burial. But he first instructed Joseph alone in private. Instructing Joseph first and alone is a clear sign that Jacob believed that Joseph was the more honorable of his brothers. Because Jacob knew that if Joseph went along with the burial instructions, they would be carried out, whether or not his brothers agreed with them. He didn't have, Jacob didn't have the confidence in his other sons, especially the older sons, because the older sons had deceived him, remember, earlier on, earlier before in the past. And even though they had changed since that time, Jacob still wouldn't trust them as much as he would trust Joseph. Because he knew that Joseph would get the job done, that he would honor his burial arrangements. Earlier, Joseph had promised Jacob if he would come to Egypt, 
back in chapter 45, verse 11, that he would take care of him. And in our last study, Joseph started to fulfill that promise. Here at Jacob's bedside, Joseph continues to carry out his promise. Because of Joseph's faithfulness, Joseph did more than just meet Jacob's basic needs. He also gave his father some tender, loving care. Even though Joseph was a busy, high-ranking official in the Egyptian government, Joseph was not too busy with his official business to make time for his father's dying. His last moments, he wanted to make them more comfortable. And when Jacob called Joseph to come visit him, because of an important concern, Joseph came and made sure that whatever his father was concerned about was taken care of, which really comforted Jacob's heart. Joseph's care for his father isn't always the case when it comes to an elderly parent or relative. You know, people are usually too busy to give the needed help and compassion that's really needed for a parent, for an elderly loved one. And the main reason that Jacob called for Joseph was to make arrangements for him to be buried in Canaan because he did not want to be buried in Egypt. As it said in chapter 47, verse 29 and 30, he said to Joseph, Do not bury me in Egypt. Please take my body out of Egypt and bury me with my ancestors. Jacob's request was just, wasn't just a sentimental feeling. What, what, what Jacob was requesting of Joseph was, it was an act of faith. You see, Canaan was the land of promise to Jacob. And it was, you know, and, and, it, was a, and it was a promise to his fathers made by God. So by Jacob asking to be buried in Canaan, he was showing his faith in the promises of God and his interest in the things of God. Now Joseph didn't, you know, agree to do this just because his father was dying. He didn't do this just because it was his father's dying wishes. He didn't do this just to make him happy. Joseph also agreed to do this because Joseph shared also in his father's faith. Joseph also wanted to be buried in Canaan when he died, and we'll see that in chapter 50, verses 24 and 25. But because of circumstances he was dealing with, because of circumstances that, that prevented him at the time of his death, he asked that his bones be carried to, to Canaan when Israel would leave Egypt years later. So Jacob's request to be buried in Canaan and the promise to do so were both because of their faith. Even though they were prosperous in Egypt, they were more interested in the things of God in Canaan than the things of the world, which Egypt is a type of. We see that Joseph's promise was a great comfort to Jacob. Because it's seen in Jacob's reaction right after Joseph, it says in 47, 31, he swore to him he would do it. And it says, then Jacob bowed himself on the head of the bed. The second thing that took place at Jacob's bed, deathbed, showed that Joseph was more excellent than his brother's was when Joseph came to visit his sick father in chapter 48, verses 1 through 22. Joseph went to see Jacob, and Genesis 48, 1 says, Notice, and now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And Joseph took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. 
So Joseph, when he hears his father is sick, he takes his two sons with him to see his father, their grandfather. So this was a thoughtful thing that Joseph did for his father. You know, what grandparents wouldn't get excited to see their grandchildren? So the visit turned out to be a greater blessing for Joseph than for his father. God's word commands saints, believers, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble or in their afflictions, James 1.27. And you know what? When we obey this command, God's commands, blessings come to those who obey. In this case, those who visit. This was Joseph's experience here because of, of this visit Joseph was given the double portion blessing of the birthright. Now, the birthright blessing of Jacob was a very important blessing. The first part of the blessing gave the one receiving the blessing twice as much of the family's inheritance than anybody else. And this is called the birthright, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The second part of the birthright blessing gave the receiver the privilege of being in the direct line of Christ, which meant Christ would come through his descendants. This part, of course, was unique in Jacob's birthright because no other family in the world was in the line of Christ. Now, Jacob's son Reuben should have been, should have received both of these blessings because he was the firstborn, and that's usually where the blessing would go, to the firstborn. But Reuben forfeited what should have been his because of his shameful incest in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. And for that reason, Jacob divided these blessings between Joseph and Judah. Joseph received the double portion blessing, and Judah got the direct line of Christ blessing. Joseph divided these blessings based on the character of those receiving it. So the double portion was one of a reward, because it spoke of worthiness. So Joseph appropriately received the double portion blessing because he was a cut above in character compared to his other brothers. So he was deserving of it. He was deserving of the double blessing. Now, the direct line of Christ's blessing was a blessing of grace because representing Christ, it spoke of mercy. Judah appropriately received the direct line of Christ's blessing because he was a great sinner. And he deserved nothing. But sinners can receive blessings when they repent. And even though Judah was a sinner, he repented of his evil doing, as we saw in his behavior in the latter part of Genesis 38. And then in his intercessory work for his younger brother Benjamin in Genesis 44. Then, just like now, grace brought the great blessing of Christ to those who had repented. So in this second bedside scene, the double portion blessing is seen in three ways. First, the blessing is seen in the blessings of, uh, for Joseph. Second, it's seen in the adoption of Joseph's boys. And third, it's seen in the giving of the land. So in each one of these three things, Jacob did show that he esteemed Joseph highly and would honor him as the most honorable one in the family. Now, Joseph's two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, were adopted by Jacob. All right, and this made them equal in inheritance, the inheritance privilege to Jacob's other sons, because being adopted, they were now like his sons. 
so they would receive a part of the inheritance as well. So this meant that Joseph was literally being treated like two sons by Jacob. His portion and his two sons' portion, which emphasizes the double portion honor. In blessing these two boys, Jacob showed great faith. That this blessing was a work of faith is mentioned in Hebrews eleven twenty one, where it says, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Now, the nature of faith is seen in many ways in this blessing. First of all, faith is confident of God's word. Notice chapter 48, verses 3 and 4. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a, mul uh, a multiple of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. So this is where faith starts. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. And he said, I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to multiply your descendants, and I'm going to make you a multitude of nations, and I'm going to give you this land, Canaan, to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Now, Jacob showed his confidence in the word when he told Joseph the promises that God made to him regarding Joseph. Now, when, Joseph, when, when, when Jacob heard this promises here in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 40, Jacob didn't question God. He didn't question God whether these promises were true or he didn't doubt that they were true. He believed that these promises would be fulfilled. Why? God said it. He believed it. And that's what faith is. God said it. We believe it. We wait for the fulfillment of it. The blessing that Jacob gave to Joseph was inspired by and based on what God told him. And you see, faith believes God's word. It doesn't doubt it. It doesn't question it, though we have questions. But we believe it because God has said it. Those who love and believe the word of God will have confidence in it. And as a result, will base their behavior, their lives, and all that they do on what God's word says. God's word is the guide for life. The second thing that we see in faith is that faith is often opposed. Look at chapter 48, verses 17 and 19. Verse 17 says, Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn, Put, so put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Notice that. When Jacob blessed Joseph's two sons, he blessed the second son first. Not the first, which was the proper order all right, in this case. Joseph didn't like that. And Joseph tried to change what his father was doing. He said, you know, he tried to lift his father off of the second son's head and to put it on the first son. 
But he said, the younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall be a multitude of nations. You see, if you try to live by faith, don't be surprised if your, faith, your faith-led decisions and behavior is met by opposition. But Joseph's opposition didn't last long. You see, Joseph was also a great man of faith. And he quickly submitted to what his father was doing. Faith is also a sure thing. Look at verse 19 of chapter 48. 19 said, but his father refused and said, I know my son, I know. Notice, I know my son, I know. He knew what was going on. He knew what he was doing. And he was doing this by faith, laying his hands on the second son rather than the first. When Joseph opposed Jacob and told him who was firstborn, Jacob said, I know my son, I know. And he said these words in faith. You see, faith doesn't give us doubts. He's telling his son, I know, Joseph, I know. I know what I'm doing here. I know who's supposed to receive this blessing. So he said these words in faith, and again, faith doesn't give us doubts. I love 1 John because when you read 1 John chapter 5, the word no is mentioned at least 30 times. Listen to 1 John 5.13. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. That you may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. How many times do people say, I don't feel like I'm born again. I don't feel like I'm saved. I don't know if I am. What John says here. These things have been written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you are not trusting in your feelings, not trusting in your emotions, not trusting by by what you feel. John says, if you believe in the name of the Son of God, you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. In 1 John 14 and 15, He says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Again, the word know used twice, just in the very next verse and two, the next two verses. He says, this is the confidence that we have in him regarding prayer, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, notice that whatever we ask, we know again that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Because how many times the devil say, oh, God doesn't hear your prayers. You know, because there's no answer right away. There's, there's no um, you know, obvious um, sign that, that God is answering your prayer. It's taking too long, whatever it might be. Hey, it's, John says, hey, that you may know that he's heard your prayer. And that you know that you will have the petitions that you have asked, for, asked of him. 1 John 5.18, John says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Again, no, we know, we know. 
1 John 5, 19, verse 20. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in, and, and we are in Him who is true, is son, the Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Again, we know, we know, we know. By the assurance of faith, Paul said this in 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul said, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. See, here's the deal. Uncertainty is often a bad case of unbelief. God's word was written so that we can know. We can trust his word. And fourth, faith is not dependent on what we see. Look at chapter 48, verses 10 through 14. Going back a little bit, verses 10 through 14. Now the eyes of Israel were dim. Again, the eyes of Jacob were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him, that is, his two sons, and he kissed them and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I have not thought to see your face. He says, I have not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside, uh, from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And then it says, Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger and, le- and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hand knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So, again, faith here on, on, on Jacob's part was not dependent on what he could see. It says his eyes were dim. He couldn't see. Jacob was guiding his hands knowingly, verse 14 says. He, was, he knew about the, the, what, what hands he was putting on who. You see, Jacob was guiding his hands knowingly on the heads of Ephraim and Manasseh. He knew what he was doing. Jacob was able to recognize which son was which in the blessing. And it's the same way in our faith. You know, it may not be able to see physically, but our faith can see spiritually. Like Hebrews 11:1 says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Faith is unseen reality. God said it, it's a done deal. It's as good as done. You know, the cry of unbelief is, show me. Show me, then I'll believe. But again, that's walking by the flesh. That's, that's walking by sight. But how many times has, and here's the thing, people will say, show me, then I'll believe. And how many times have they seen God's hand? How many times have they seen the work of God and they still don't believe? How many times has unbelief been shown over and over and over and yet it still doesn't change to belief? Faith believes even though it can't see. And that belief turns into seeing. Faith is a blessing to man. Look at chapter 48, verse 15. Chapter 48, verse 15. 
And he blessed Joseph and said, God and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day. Then look at verse 20. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. But don't notice, both, both verses, that begins with blessed. Faith is a blessing to man. Jacob was able to bless his son Joseph and his grandsons because of his faith. You will bless and reward your family the most and the best with your faith. You might be famous. You might be wealthy. But you don't have to be famous. You don't have to be wealthy. You know, it's not necessary in order to be a blessing. Churches need to learn this too. Churches will bless society the most and the best by having faith in God's word and proclaiming this faith. The sixth thing we see in faith is faith is not afraid of death. Look at chapter 48, verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Faith is not afraid of death. Jacob said to Joseph, Hey, I'm dying. Jacob didn't talk about dying in a fearful way. He just knew that his time was coming to an end. He knew where he was going. So he could talk about death and not be afraid. And that's what Jesus said when he resurrected and he, and he, and he you know, went and, and, and was introducing himself to people for 40 days. He was showing them that, that, that death is nothing to fear, that you know, he still had the same relationships. It was, still, it was still Jesus. He was merging the known with the unknown. So there's no reason to fear death. The believer isn't afraid of death like the unbeliever is because faith takes away the fear. He knew he was going to die and he could talk about death and not be afraid. You know, when you look at Scripture and you look at God's view of death and, and, and all the, the hope and the promises that we have, death is really something to look forward to. Psalm 1611 says, You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forevermore. I, I know I, I probably told you the story before, but I, I think of it every time I think about death being a pleasure and and, and you know, the, the desire to go there. And Pastor Chuck Smith said one time to us at a pastor's conference, he says, you know, if I'm dying and, and I see any of you pastors praying for me to stay alive, he says, and I wake up, I'm going to punch you right in the nose. Paul said, for me, for me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better, Paul said. I'm reading it from the New Living Translation. He says, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. He said, but if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between the two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me, but he says, if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ, so I really don't know which is better. Now, he knows it's better for him to be with the Lord, but he goes, you know, there's those that who, need the, who need Jesus. So he says, in that sense, he says, I don't really know what's better. He says, I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. 
And why is that? Because there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. You know, no more tribulations, nor trials, nor sin, nor temptations, or, or any of those things that we have to deal with every single day. So now at the second end of this, I'm sorry, at the end of this second deathbed scene, Jacob gave to Joseph an extra portion of land. And this giving of this land also clearly emphasized the double portion of blessing. Look at chapter 48, verse 22. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers. Notice so a double portion, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Joseph had lived faithfully. He was deserving of a lot of blessing. Jacob did not miss his chance to recognize Joseph's extraordinary character. And when the double portion blessing was given, it went to the right person. It went to Joseph. Now, the third scene at uh, Jacob's deathbed is found in chapter 49. Now here, Jacob gives freely blessings, gives fatherly blessings to his 12 sons. Other than Judah, not much is said about the other brothers and the birthright blessings in comparison to Joseph. Joseph, uh, Jacob sees Joseph as a fruitful bough. Look at chapter 49 now, verse 22. Joseph sees, uh, Jacob sees Joseph as a fruitful bough. Verse 22 says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. A fruitful branch who's attacked and continues to receive a lot of blessings from God is because of his holy living. Verse 22, look at it again. Joseph is a fruitful bough, that's a branch. Joseph is a fruitful branch. Now that fruitful branch is by a well and those branches run over the well, run over the wall. So verse 22 is a picture of Joseph's life and his character. And it wasn't hard to see that Joseph was a fruitful bough or a fruitful branch. In Galatians 5.22, we can see the fruit of the Spirit listed there. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we can see plenty of examples of each of these fruit in Joseph's life. We saw love demonstrated in Joseph's heart for his father. We saw his love demonstrated to his ten older brothers and his youngest brother, Benjamin. We saw joy in Joseph when his father gave him the coat of many colors when we first started our study. We saw joy in Joseph when he was led out of prison and he became prime minister. We also saw joy in, in, in Joseph when he was reunited with his father and when, he, and when his father came to Egypt. We saw Jesus, Joseph had peace. He had a lot of peace so that he could bless others with peace. You know, he had such a peace that he gave Pharaoh peace. He gave Egypt peace when the famine came. And he gave his brothers peace when they were worried about their situation of possibly starving. Joseph demonstrated the fruit of the spirit of long-suffering, which is patience, in the way that he dealt with being a slave. You know, he was long-suffering and he was in his courageous reaction to injustice when he was put in jail wrongly. And we see it in his faithfulness in his service when he had to stay in prison longer than he was supposed to. He waited it out patiently. 
He demonstrated gentleness in his compassion for the butler and the baker. He demonstrated his gentleness in the way he treated his brothers after what they had done to him. He demonstrated gentleness in the way he governed the people. And Joseph demonstrated goodness or righteousness when he reported the truth to his father about the evil behavior of his brothers. He demonstrated goodness in his purity when he was seduced by Potiphar's wife. And he also demonstrated his goodness in his honesty with Potiphar as a slave. Joseph demonstrated his faithfulness over and over and over. He confessed it in prison. He confessed it in the palace. He confessed it when he was dying. And Joseph demonstrated his meekness when he answered, Here I am to his father. When he submitted to his father's call. In his, in his obedient behavior as a slave, he, submitted, he showed his meekness. He showed his meekness as a, as a prisoner. He showed his meekness in his respectfulness of Pharaoh, even though he was second in command of Egypt. And Joseph demonstrated self-control when he was tempted to do something immoral. He demonstrated self-control in front of his ten brothers when they first came to Egypt. You know, he had to run out and find a place where he could cry. He demonstrated, again, uh, self-control in his wise and disciplined administration of the government during that, that, that famine crisis. So you see, Joseph was a, fr a fruitful bough. He was, you know, Jacob described him well. But where did Joseph get this strength to be such a fruitful bough? Well, notice in 49 verse 22, it says he was a fruitful bough, but where was he? By a well. By a well. What's in a well? Water. Water is necessary to be a fruitful branch. You need water to survive. You need water to be productive. The man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, the psalmist said in, verse, in Psalm 1-3, is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in due season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. You see, being near a well assures the tree or the vine of a flourishing life that's capable of bearing fruit. And we are to be fruit bearers. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. Now, we're not to produce the fruit. God produces the fruit, but we're to bear it. But we need to be near the living water to bear the fruit. Being near a well assures the tree or the vine <clears throat> of flourishing. <clears throat> and, 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 and it's capable then of, of bearing fruit. Joseph, like the psalmist, was, was located by that spiritual well of living water and, the, and his word. And you see, that's why Joseph was fruitful. He lived his life close to God and a continuous remembrance of his word. The reason for so much unfruitfulness in Christians' lives is that they don't spend a lot of time near the well of the living water. We just saw this not too long ago in Jeremiah chapter 2, 13. God said this to his people. He said to Jeremiah, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The two evils that, that, that God's people committed. 
They forsook the, li- the, the fountain of living water. They made their own wells, which he said they were broken wells. They, they, they can't hold any water. Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 1, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, the living waters. Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life, John 4, 13 and 14. See, a believer will not find a well in this world. See, the well is in God, and it's in His Word. Thirdly, notice in chapter 49, verse 22, it was also said of Joseph that his branches run over the wall. This is a picture of a tree or a vine that is so healthy because it's next to a well that it grows over the wall. Joseph didn't just bear fruit at home. Joseph's fruit extended to Potiphar's home. Joseph's fruit extended to the prison. It extended to Pharaoh's palace, and then it went into much of the world. And we're called to take this fruit into the world. It's a picture of dedication and consecration. Some people have spread their branches of blessings even down through the years to this day. Their inspiring lives and their sermons and their books have continued to grow and bless many generations way after them, like Spurgeon and Moody and Tozer and Pastor Chuck Smith, J. Vernon McGee. Hey, they're still spreading their fruit over the wall of time. The difference between being blight or a light that is being a blessing depends on where you are. Are you by a well? You have to be by the well if you want to do well. No other location will be good enough. Remember, in the last couple of uh, studies during this last week, I mentioned being there, the there place. God says, meet me there, and I will bless you. Well, that's where we need to be. We need to be there in order to receive the blessing. We need to be by the well to grow and to flourish. We're not going to find it in the world. It's it's that, that well of living water. You'll find it only in God and in His Word. No other location will do the job. No other location is good enough. And then after talking about Joseph as being a fruitful bough, then Jacob talks about Joseph's battles in chapter 49, verses 23 and 24. Look what it says in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 49. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, uh, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep, that lies beneath blessings of the breast and of the womb. It says that, he said, the the archers attacked him. They attacked him savagely. Speaking of Joseph, they shot at him. They they harassed him. But it says his bow remained strong. It remained taut. 
His arms were strengthened by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Why was Joseph attacked? Because he was fruitful. He was productive. Satan will not leave the fruitful saints alone. So, you know, and I've mentioned this before and I've heard it before that if Satan is not hassling you, you better check yourself. Satan loves a believer that does nothing, that is not being useful for the kingdom of God. You want Satan to leave you alone? Be unfruitful. Just do your thing. Why should he bother you? He has you right where he wants you. Not doing anything for the kingdom of God. That's why Joseph was attacked. He was fruitful. He was productive. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. So the fruitful and productive believer won't be left alone by the evil one. The fruitful and productive believer will be annoyed, he will be pursued, he will be attacked, and he will be slandered by the enemy. So there's no surprise when we read about the, the severe encounters that Joseph had with the enemy right after reading about this fruitfulness for the Lord. Remember, it's after the blessings that the battles come. Now, who were Joseph's attackers? Well, uh, verse 23 says that they were the archers, meaning they were the masters of bows, which means they were skilled and they were talented troublemakers. Joseph wasn't dealing with rookies in his opposition. These weren't rookies that were coming after him. His brothers and Potiphar's wives, they they were experts in wickedness. They could shoot their evils of of evil with with precision. Our enemy is no rookie. The devil is subtle and he is cunning. Which means, and again, in Genesis 3.1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The word cunning means crafty, prudent, subtle. He knows what he's doing. The problem is a lot of Christians don't see Satan that way. They see him as a little cartoon character with a pitchfork and red pajamas. That's why they're deceived. That's why they're misled and misguided and disobedient. And it explains why so many Christians are falling by the wayside with their lives and ruined by their sin. We are not going to defeat this enemy without taking a strong stand against him. Joseph did not take his enemy lightly. When he was attacked by Potiphar's wife, he refused her. And he said to her in chapter 39, verse 9, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And Joseph's battles, man, they were tough. And the attackers tried everything they could to ruin Joseph. He was attacked from every side. The attackers bitterly grieved him, it says in chapter 49, verse 23. They bitterly grieved him. They tried to grieve him, you know, in the the pit, in slavery, in the prison. They shot at him with evil words. They tried to take him down through slander. They hated him because of envy. So the attack of evil today is just as tough as it was with Joseph. The battle will come at you from every side. 1 John 2.16 says it comes from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So you can't leave any part of your life unguarded or unprotected because a a full-scale attack 
can only be defeated by a full-scale defense. And even though Joseph was viciously attacked in battle, he wasn't overcome. Look at chapter 49, verse 24. Look what it says. Because his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. You see, Joseph was the victor. He wasn't a victim. Why? Joseph was fully prepared because he lived by the well, by God and his word. Again, a tree located by a well will have its roots deep in the ground so it won't be uprooted by the storms of life. Christians who continuously live near the Lord and they daily draw from the well of the word of God, they won't be brought down by every temptation that crosses their path. They will be given divine strength to stand. The key to winning the war against wickedness and temptation is to live by the well. Remember that. Live by the well. Live by the well. So in closing, Joseph was truly a cut above all other men, mainly those in his family. He was, cut, he was a cut above in fruitfulness. He was a cut above in overcoming his enemies. He was a cut above in quality and the number of blessings that he received. He was a cut above because he lived by the well. And I want those words to sink in, to live by the well. He put, he put holiness before happiness. Many people in the world have it reversed. Their goal is happiness. Trying to pursue happiness and find those things that make them happy. God's concerned more for our holiness than he is our happiness. So Joseph put holiness before happiness. He put purity before pleasure, and most of all, he put God before man. Too many Christians today, they don't live by the well. They live next to the world. They want to see how close they can live to the edge without falling in. Instead of living by the well, which explains the spiritual deadness, the lukewarmness, which is so prevalent in many Christians' lives today. We all need to seriously decide and strive to live by the well. I'm finished with Paul's words in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles means stratagems. He's a strategizer. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up notice the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Notice the two things, the word of God and prayer. You want to be, be uh, um, the victor? In this battle against the enemy, it takes the word of God and it takes prayer. That's our armor. 
And without the word of God, we are disarmed. That's exactly what Satan did with Eve in the garden. He disarmed her when he began to cause Eve to doubt the word of God. And as soon as he can get you to doubt the word of God or put down the word of God, guess what? He's disarmed you. You have nothing to defend yourself. Now, now, now you're, you're Satan's. You're Satan's. Because you don't have that sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Father, we thank you so much for Joseph's person, Lord, his character, his attributes, Lord. And Lord, if we want to be a cut above everyone else, Lord, we need to live by the well. Live by the well. So, Father, may we be encouraged, God. May we be stirred up. Father, may we plant ourselves by that well of living water, like that fruitful tree who's planted by the rivers of living water, whose leaf doesn't fade and whose branches don't wither, God. We thank you, God, so much. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.